sermon titled is All Means All. We're continuing in our Romans series. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And we're going to be discussing one of the principal um, verses that we find here in the book of Romans and um, what this entire chapter uh, means and how it fits in with Paul's overall presentation of what the gospel is. One of the, I think, the great tragedies that we have in today's culture is we've lost the ability to be able to talk to one another in a reasonable manner. Has anybody noticed this? It's like you can't even bring up um, any conversation without it devolving immediately into screaming, without it immediately devolving into some sort of, of you're bad, I'm good, you should think this way, no, I, you should think this way. And it's, it's, it's just this huge mess that we are in right now as a society. And I, I think there's two reasons for this. I think there's, one, there's a little bit of a deficiency in our educational system in the way that I think the Common Core and, and different things that, that are going on. Um, and one of the biggest deficiencies, I think, is that we don't teach a good history, and we also don't teach philosophy anymore. Philosophy is simply the discovery of truth, is really what philosophy is. And the second thing that I think leads to this inability to talk to each other is that we've limited our debate skills to 140 characters or less. Now, what social media platform uses 140 characters or less? Anybody know? Yahoo. No? Nope, not Yahoo. Facebook. Nope. No, you can write books on Facebook. Twitter. Yeah, I know. Nobody, Twitter's not that big around here, but like in the cities, Twitter's huge. So you have to limit your idea, your argument, your replies, everything to less than 140 characters. Now, they've expanded that a little bit recently, but when you try to express any truth in 140 characters or less, you're already losing that argument because truth is so multi-layered that, that you can't boil it down. You often can't boil it down to that. And we've become, because of this, I think we've become a people of extremely short attention spans. We're easily moved by every clickbait story or extremely slanted TV news broadcast that we see. In much of our society, we've lost the ability to have rational conversations. Right now, our society seems to be in two camps. And you have your conservatives over here, you have your leftists or liberals over here, and all we're doing, we're not talking to each other, there's this giant wall right here, and all we're doing is trying to throw grenades over the wall at one another, but there's no real conversation happening at all. All it is is a continuous one-upsmanship in, in, in our uh, civil discourse right now. I think we've forgotten how to think for ourselves, we've forgotten how to communicate, and we've really forgotten how to communicate thoughts in a manner that is compelling, honest, and kind. I mean, let's be honest. If we said a lot of things that we say online to a person's face, we'd get punched. I remember when I was growing up, you said something, I, you, a lot of this stuff that is said online if you walked up and said that to a person's face, there was a fight right there. Somebody's throwing down. 
And I'm not saying that we have to go back to that kind of like a barbarism thing, but we had a social contract with each other where we were going to be at least polite and nice at one time in this country. Now going back to the first point, the failure of teaching history and learning its lessons. And education, somebody told me this when I was, I, when I was um, going through one of my 47 college experiences here. <laughs> they, I said, why do I need to know this? I'm never going, I forgot what it was, but I said, I'm never going to use this in real life. I think it, maybe it was algebra. Yeah, it was algebra. I never, have, ever, ever going to use algebra. Wrong, yeah, then I took chemistry. Um, so I'm never going to use algebra. Why do I need to know this? My teacher just said education isn't about stuffing facts into your head. Education is showing you different ways of thinking so that you can reason things out, so that you can understand the background of things and take that, those little snippets in the background and form great cohesive thoughts. You remember a few years ago, there was a t-shirt and an ad campaign that said challenge everything. I remember this was our pastor back then preached about it. And because he was afraid that people would challenge the authenticity of their faith. That people would take this, this idea of challenging everything and apply it to Christianity. I don't see that as a threat though. I honestly don't. I actually encourage everyone here, question your faith. You should question your faith. You should ask honest, hard questions of God. God encourages that of you, as long as you're coming at him with a right heart with it. Say, God, I really don't understand this. Help me to understand your heart with this. Versus, I'm not going to believe in you because you don't fit in my box, and therefore I'm not going to believe in you. It has to do with the heart that you come to him. And a few weeks ago, we lost one of our great Christian apologists, and what probably the greatest that has ever lived. His name was Dr. Ravi Zacharias. You ever heard of him? Ravi Zacharias died of uh, cancer a few weeks ago. And an apologist is not one who repeatedly says, I'm sorry for Christianity. An apologist is one who gives a defense of the Christian faith. Is a person who gives almost a legal explanation of all of the, of the intricacies, both from a scriptural perspective and a philosophical perspective of the Christian faith. And Ravi's whole ministry was answering tough questions about the faith. I listen to him every morning on the way to work. So I leave at 5 in the morning, and he's on from 5 to about 5.15 in the morning. And I listen to him and just listen and just admire his ability to just boil everything down. And I would hope that all of us would strive to be great apologists for our faith so we can answer those kind of tough questions for people. However, when we go to answer these questions, I encourage us to have actual conversations with people. Social media is really a poor way of communicating with people. Oftentimes, that's the only way we can communicate with people that live you know, way far away. But when we talk about these complex questions of, of faith and, and philosophy and all these kind of things, social media usually isn't the way to do it. Matter of fact, it's one of my favorite sayings online. I said, the person who, the number of people that have ever been truly influenced by a Facebook meme or saying stands forever at zero. Nobody has really truly influenced 
to take another view because of social media. It just concretes them in the wrong one or the right one sometimes. I think if Jesus were walking the earth today, do you think Jesus would have a Facebook page? I think he might, but I don't think he'd ever communicate really to anybody on it. I don't think he'd have Facebook conversations and try to defend the faith through social media. Jesus would be all about the one-on-one. And that's how we should be when we practice apologetics, is, is sitting down with people, having coffee, let's sit across the table, let's actually have a real conversation. And I want you to remember that all this stuff that I've been talking about is to bring us back to Romans chapter 3, because Paul is being an apologist for the Christian faith here. He's really starting to dig down into the nitty-gritty. And he's doing exactly what a lawyer would do in the courtroom. Anybody like legal dramas? I kind of like watching legal dramas. You watch the attorneys go back and forth. Um, One of the great movies of our time, A Few Good Men, talked about that, where they're making points and counterpoints, and the attorney is over there asking a question, and the person would answer, and he's trying to catch them in an in inconsistency, and then they would dig into that inconsistency to, to disprove their testimony. Well, Paul is doing that here with the gospel, as he's bringing out several truth claims and, and, um, and bringing them up and then asking questions of the truth claims that his readers might already be thinking and then answering them for them. So you have to think that Paul is giving a very legal... Um, legal defense of the gospel here. And I just want to bring that back to your minds and and encourage you to keep that in mind as we read Romans chapter 3 today. And Shane is going to do our reading if you want to come up, sir. Romans 3. One advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in being circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, they have been entrusted with their very words of God, What if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true, and every man be man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say, that God is unjust in bringing the wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, in my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles are alike, are all under sin. As it is written, there is no righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The prison of vipers is on their lips. Poison. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of his sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through the faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justify those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. On what principles? On that of observing the law? No, but on the faith, on that of faith. For we maintain the man is justified by faith from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by the faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. That is Romans chapter 3. Thank you, Shane. I appreciate that. Good job. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the gospel of grace. We ask, Father, you just open up our hearts and our minds that your word can speak to us, can change us, and to fashion us into a a vessel of honor that you can use in these last days to bring dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people, to know you. Father God, I thank you, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talk a little bit about apologetics, and Paul begins this chapter by showing us what apologetics looks like. It shows us how we can defend the Christian faith. And some of this is just reviewing in our minds the truth and then thinking, well, if I was actually going to present this truth to somebody, what would some of the things that they would be saying back to me? And then being prepared to give that kind of an answer. So this is here not to just fill your head up with knowledge, but help you to read your Bible for yourself and see what Paul is doing here in in being this apologist. And in particular, you see this in verses 1, 3, 7, and 9. He does it with a series of statements that Paul uses to frame Christianity to his specific audience, which was mostly Jewish people, converted Jewish people. However, he also was speaking to a Greek crowd. So you had two basic peoples in that area at the time, and they were the the Jews or the Hebrews, or they were the Greek people. Rome supplanted the, uh, the empire of Greece, and so Rome, um, Rome was unique in that it did not 
totally come in and wipe out that culture and insist on you following their culture. They absorbed other cultures, the best of other cultures, into themselves. And so one of the things that was in Rome at the time was a huge study of philosophy. And again, philosophy is not some weird kind of stuff. It is simply trying to find out that which is true. That's why the study of philosophy is sometimes valuable, because it teaches you how to find out the truth. And so they use something called the Socratic method to do that. And the Socratic method is seen actually in, in courts of law. And it comes from the Greek philosopher Socrates, who is considered to be the uh, father of philosophy. And the Socratic method works like this. They say it's a truth statement. I would say the sky is blue. And then you might come back and say, well, how do you know it's really blue? Well, because we've established that this color we're looking at is blue, and it is not red, and therefore it has to be something other than the red. Well, is it purple? No, it's not purple. It's too light of a shade. And you would go, it sounds like it's tedious, but you would go through this to, to um, decide exactly how that true statement works, or it would be disproven through this kind of a method. And that's just kind of a, a very, very brief overview of the Socratic method. And now a quick synopsis of how Paul is using it here. The in verse 1 he says, is there an advantage of being a Jew? So what do we think? Is there any advantage of being a Jewish person? A Jewish Christian versus a Gentile Christian? Anybody here have Jewish background that you know of? You do? That explains it. I never knew that. Gosh, your propensity for arguing about everything and explaining. Ah! <laughs> 27 years and I never realized that. <laughs> I did not know that. My kids are Jewish. Okay. I didn't know that. That totally explains them, too. <laughs> So many things are coming clear. Thank you, God, on this Father's Day. <laughs> She's going to be putting return stamps on all my Father's Day presents as soon as we get back. <laughs> so is there really, in, in, within Christianity, is there any advantage of being a Jew? Kind of. I mean, just a little bit. Yes, but only in that the Jewish nation was the one that brought forth the Messiah and brought the word of God to us. But as far as salvation goes, they are subject to the same thing, the same need to come to Christ as everyone else. There is, there's something called a double salvation or replacement theology out there that talks about, well, Jews are saved one way and Christians are saved another. That's totally false. Everyone has to come to faith through to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And that answers verse 3. What if chosen Jews didn't have faith? And that's what Paul says. Now everybody has the same requirement, salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 5. I'm going to paraphrase that a little bit because Paul gets a little long-worded. Basically, Paul says, what if me sinning makes God look more holy? In other words, if I get really, really, really bad and roll around in the mud, it makes God look much, much cleaner. Or should we do evil that good may result? 
Now, Paul takes on almost a mocking tone here when he said it's essentially only a hard human heart that comes up with such a ridiculous uh, claim like that, saying that, that if I become so dark, it makes God's light look that much brighter. And it really kind of is a dumb argument, if you think about it. It's kind of like you're having an argument with your significant other, and they get kind of put back on the ropes a little bit, and they come out and said, well, remember last year when you did the same thing? You know, it's, it's kind of like that. It's, it's, it's almost getting down to that kind of a, a discussion. And that's what that answer is like. Now, verse 9, it says, this, so, well, since Jews aren't better than Christians, are Christians then better than Jews? And Paul's answer to that is that, no, we are all alike. We're all under sin's curse. And all means all. Everyone. Every single human being who has ever lived is under sin's curse, with the exception of Christ. Paul quotes from several Old Testament verses, mostly Psalms, to prove his point. And the summary verse is verse 10, when he says that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands and no one who seeks God. So Paul is very, very clear about the condition of the human race here, especially the human race apart from Jesus Christ. And he, he uses these arguments to set up verses 19 and 20 when he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silent, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, and this is the law's purpose, rather through the law we become conscious of sin. Now, two major points. Who's under the law? Is it just the Jew? A lot of people say, well, the, the, the law only applies to people who are Jewish. No, everyone is under the law. Every single person, especially well, every single person, before they come to Christ, is under law. All 613 Old Testament laws that are in the Bible all basically say the same thing. You break this, you're doomed. Just one time. That's all it takes. One time, and it's like, injecting poison into your body that you can never get rid of. It will always, always affect you. And if you don't do the law perfectly, you spend an eternity in hell. This is why Jesus had to come. The second point is that no one can earn God's favor through following the law. And you say, why? Because it's impossible for the imperfect to be perfect. And I know men, it's hard, it's hard, but you know what? We're not perfect. If you doubt that, lean over, ask your wife, text her, you know, she'll let you know. We have at least one or two flaws within us, right? I compare this to <laughs> I compare this to, I compare sin 
in our lives, that, that first time we sin or, or because of sin's curse on us, to shattering a mirror. Now, if I take like a, you know, a full-length mirror and I take a hammer and I, I smash it, and then I spend the rest of my life taking every small shard of glass with some super glue and putting it exactly back to where it was, at the end of the day, what am I going to have? A broken mirror. It's still going, I mean, I might get every shard in there perfectly, but when I look at this mirror, you're always going to see that it was broken. There is no way to put that back together. And that's what sin does to our lives. Once committed, there is only brokenness. And depending on and us trying to depend on our own goodness to win God's favor by obedience to the law is like trying to make that broken mirror look perfect again. And after dealing with these kind of objections, Paul now brings the gospel. Paul spent the last part of chapter 2 and into the first chap- part of chapter 3 here proving that there is no way to God based on our own efforts. And now he brings it home in verse 21. He says, Now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. Verse 23, for all, how many people? All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Thank God for his forbearance. You notice that God did not immediately, when we were teenagers or when we became aware of what sin was, immediately strike us dead. Thank God. Thank God he doesn't do the same thing today. See, God, when he saw you in eternity past and looked forward to eternity future, he saw the finished product. Thank God. He saw the finished product. He didn't see this rebellion. He didn't see that rebellion. He didn't see that willful sin. He didn't see all this other stuff. God saw the finished product. You standing in robes of white that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's why righteousness cannot be found in the law. That's why virtually every other religion on earth has personal performance as its criteria to make you pleasing to whatever deity they worship. You have to do a proper sacrifice and done in the right way at the right time in the right temple or the the proper ethical framework within your life. If you do enough of this, you can can have your sins forgiven. That's a man-made religion. 
That's why all, Paul emphasized that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you can't get through there. You can't get to God through a practice of do's and don'ts. That's why religion says do, but Jesus said done. It is done. There is nothing more you can do to make yourself pleasing to God. That's why the Bible says we're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And look at that word. How much did we have to pay? Freely. Free. All we have to do is accept. Only believe. It's always been about relief. From Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation chapter 21, it has always been about faith that God's word is true. God made it simple. Humanity mucks it up. And before Jesus utters those famous words in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world, he gave us his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Before he went there, he points all the way back to Numbers 21, to a place that every Jew would remember in their Torah training and through their childhood, an incident when Israel is wandering in the wilderness. Remember, God delivers them out of Egypt. They go into the desert. They meet him at Mount Sinai. They send out spies into the promised land to, to get a report. The spies come back. The spies give a bad report. And only two people gave a good report, but everybody followed what the spies said, what the other spies said. And therefore, God determined that they're going to wander in the wilderness until everybody dies and a new generation comes up so that he can take that generation into the promised land with the exception of, of, uh, of Caleb and Joshua. So they're wandering in the desert. You say, well, how, how, how do they find food in the desert? Well, God gave them food called manna. Every morning, manna would appear on the ground. It was, it was uh, a sweetened bread. And God supplied their every needs through this manna. And so they're, they're taking this trip through the desert. They're, they're you know, spending a year or two here, a year or two here, but they just keep wandering in the desert and moving around and, and everything else. God's supplying their every need. He's supplying the water, supplying the food. They don't have to do anything except this. But they start complaining. They start whining, I don't want any more of this bread. I can't stand this bread. I don't want no more of it. And they want food. And they're saying, we should just go back to Egypt. At least we had real food in Egypt. At least we could, 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 could you know, eat fruit and vegetables and meat and all this other kind of stuff. We could do all this stuff in Egypt. They, you know, they forgot about the whips and the chains and the forced labor and the killing of their children and all this other stuff. They wanted to go back to all that instead of experience God in his presence. So God judges them. God sends serpents among them. And people start to die from the serpent bites. God, Moses cries out. God tells him, I want you to pound a piece of brass into the shape of a snake. And I want you to take that snake, put it on a pole, and hold it up to the people. And whoever gazes upon that will be saved. Now that seemed like a very, very, very odd way for God to save them. I never really, really understood it, honestly, until I saw it portrayed in The Chosen. The Chosen, you know, those episodes, they typically start out with a story from the Old Testament, and then at the end of, that, at the, end of the New Testament story, you see how that applied to Jesus. 
And one of the, I'm, I'm, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but one of the episodes begins with Moses pounding out this snake out of bronze and, he's, and Joshua arguing with him, saying, our people are dying. What are you pounding on this piece of brass for? And, and Moses is saying, I've just learned not to question. I'm just doing what God has, has told me to do. I've learned not to question him. And so when he put the snake on, a, on the pole, he said, can you get me that pole over there? And it's been kind of in the background. You never really notice it. He takes the pole, and guess what it is? It's a cross. Because that's the only way you're going to get that snake on that pole to stay up there, is to put it on a cross. It's always been the answer. Even in the Old Testament, centuries, centuries, a millennia before crucifixion even came in to the mind of sinful man as a form of execution, it was always the cross. And that's why Jesus says in in those preceding verses in John chapter 3, he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Then, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. You see, it wasn't the bronze serpent that saved him. It was looking at the cross. The cross of Christ has always been the answer for us. In fact, in Revelation, I think it's, it's chapter 13, it says that, that the Lamb of God was slain from the creation of the world. It's always been God's plan. Calvary was not a knee-jerk reaction from a God who let his creation get out of control. It was always the plan. That's why Paul ends this chapter with a summary statement where he says, Where then is boasting? It's excluded. I can't get to God by my own righteousness. I can't stand up here and say, I'm holier than you are, and that's why God loves me more. I can't say it. Because it's not because of me. And he says, on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, on that of faith. That's why it drives me crazy when people tell me that that they think that or I think that I'm better than them because I go to church. I said, no, I go to church because I know I'm one of the worst people on earth apart from Christ. Even in Christ, I'm only moderately okay. And I have no hope other than that cross of Jesus Christ. No hope. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen? And if you have any other hope of pleasing God this morning than that of Jesus, you have no hope. You have a false idol standing in a place where a cross is supposed to be. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning you have no other way to heaven than that through the cross. Let's all rise. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for Paul's powerful defense of the gospel. That he answers every question before we compose them. He destroys every argument that would set itself up as a a replacement to the cross. 
And he, he is very, very plain spoken here when he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and only through Jesus Christ can you be saved. Father, let that be our message to, pe- to the people around us. Not a, a message of, well, if you do this and don't do that, you'll be okay. But a message of, you have no other hope than Jesus. I have no other hope than Jesus. I, the worst of sinners, am being saved only through the grace of Jesus Christ. Let that be our message. Let that guide our every action, our every conversation. Let that ha- uh, cause our hearts to swell with love and compassion toward those who don't agree with our, our view of the world today. And let us live this every single moment of every single day so that our very lives speak the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Father God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, God. Father, I just bless your people now. Give them opportunity this week to speak the truth of the gospel in their lives, through their words, and through their actions. I bless them now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming this morning. Have a happy Father's Day.